0: It seems now more than ever, we're awash in data. New stories abound as reporters try to make sense of pulling data or government statistics or the findings of a research article. All this, while the very nature of facts, is up for debate. The ins and outs of data journalism is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics, I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, chair of Media, Journalism and Film. Today's guest is Mona Chalabi, data editor of Guardian U.S., Her job is to sift through the noise to find the stories and all the data that's out there. She's also a columnist for New York Magazine. Now, now Mona, you've worked for a number of non-journalistic outlets, including the Bank of England and the International Organization for Migration. How do you find yourself at The Guardian now?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I guess it was an interesting career move. Uh, I really wanted to get into journalism because I felt quite frustrated in my previous roles that a lot of the statistics I was taking a long time in gathering and collecting um, weren't being shared with a wide audience and I see that wide audience as very important not just for my ego um, but also for verifying that information so for example when I was working at the International Organization for Migration um we were collecting statistics on uh, refugees and internally displaced people and kind of producing reports about what these individuals needed. But those individuals really had the chance to actually see those reports or see the statistics to tell us what we were and weren't getting correct. Oh. So I think that having a wide audience is very important for statistical accuracy.
2: Very good. So, so what are you working on now?
1: Well, uh, literally two minutes before I jumped on the phone with you guys, I filed um, a story about the departure of John H. Thompson as uh, director of the Census Bureau, which I'm sure all of you guys are well aware of as well. Uh,
2: He was one of our recent guests.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. No just, way. Just Where like two it weeks ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we just oh, did gosh. the recording. We two haven't weeks. released the second episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And how did he sound when you were speaking to him? I read in one of, as I was researching the piece, that apparently up until quite recently, he sounded kind of optimistic about finding a way to make the Census Bureau's budget work. Uh,
3: yes. With us, too. <laughs> With us, too. Yeah. yeah. Although he couldn't talk about specific numbers.
1: Yeah. So. Well, my understanding is that it was only last week that the that the budget bill was passed, which means that the Bureau effectively definitely doesn't have the money that it needs to be able to do its work. Um, I assume that's a big reason for his resignation, but, you know, obviously that's just conjecture.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty big story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I mean it's a really it's an important one to talk about I guess because it's a really big part of my role it's it's kind of relatively easy to write a fun piece on um sex or dating or how food habits in America are changing but trying to get the public to really really care about something like this is a kind of a different set of challenges and I think this is a really big story I think it's a a really big deal um I spoke to a lot of government statisticians in early January um and I was asking them about how they, what they thought the impact of the Trump administration might be on statistics in this country, and I was kind of reassured and concerned by their responses that it was kind of across the board that people were saying, we don't think that the administration is going to actually manipulate the numbers. What we're concerned about is them aggressively defunding statistical agencies yeah. to the mm. point where they actually can't do their jobs. And you're starting to see this happening, I think. It's, it's worrying. It's really worrying. Right
3: you're talking about this bigger audience. And, mm. the, the, and the, what are the challenges for you? Because you have to talk to that audience in a way that's much different than how you would talk to other statisticians. So what are some of your techniques? How do you tell those stories?
1: Um, so I mentioned sex and food. I think that um, choosing topics that readers are already interested and engaged with and they feel like is relevant to their personal lives is a really important way to make sure that um, they see the value and importance of data. Um, so I'll give an example. Uh, I recently wrote a piece on, um, again, another Trump appointment, uh, I believe it was the Deputy Assistant Secretary in a Department on Family Planning, um, mm. and this, I, I actually forget the woman's name, but she has, she has publicly said on the record before that contraception doesn't work. So I wrote a piece. um, Sorry, go ahead. Was you going to say something? No, we were just sort of aghast. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so the piece that I wrote was about um, the efficacy of contraception. And yes, again, I think that many people who are data journalists um, don't concede that, like, the numbers are... There is a degree of imprecision about the numbers. And part Mm. of our job is to acknowledge that imprecision and communicate it to people in a way that they can understand. So I wrote a piece that was explaining the differences between typical use of contraceptions and perfect use. And that um and that basically is a story about probabilities. Yeah. So again, so come back to your initial question about ways to make these these subjects engaging. Part of it is taking the subject matter, which many people including myself care about, uh, which is the odds of basically falling pregnant. <laughs> and then, uh, and making making that subject a uh, kind of communicating it with data, but B using um, literally language. So the sentence structure that I'm using to, to write this stuff, but also a big part of what I do is using um, visual tools. Yeah, so yeah. in this particular scenario, what I did was I um, I used the analogy of throwing two dice. So and again, this was in the visual which I made to accompany the story, and also the story itself. So I said to the readers. Imagine throwing two dice. Uh, the probability that it will land, on that you'll get two ones, is about the probability that after three years of typical use, um, you will be, become, if you're a woman, <laughs> obviously that changes <laughs> some of the odds, uh, that <laughs> as a woman you will become um, pregnant after three years of typical use of using the hormonal IUD. Mm-hmm. Um, now imagine that you're using the withdrawal method or the pull-out method. Um, after three years of typical use, the chances that you will get pregnant are... Um, more likely than the odds that you will roll, that the two sides, sorry, I'm, I realize I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this now, <laughs> That the odds that you will roll um, two dice that will add up to a two, a three, a four, a five, <laughs> uh, or even a six. Oh, wow. So oh. again, it's, it, they're all mathematical concepts, but they're very much related to people's everyday lives. And hopefully in the process of explaining that, I can help people understand probabilities a little bit better as well.
2: So, so how did you how did you do this with the uh, the story with with, the, with Thompson resigning?
1: Oh no, no useful visuals or probabilities, unfortunately, <laughs> in that one. Um, but I did I did make a choice again about language. So rather than writing this up as a news story, which I know a lot of other um, organisations have chosen to do, I decided to write this as a comment piece because I felt like that would kind of liberate me to use the language that I feel is appropriate for this story, which is you know concerned language possibly indignant language mm-hmm. um so oh, oh i can quote you a little bit um of it so i've written this is the second paragraph of the piece if you're not particularly rolled up by the words census bureau resignation that's understandable <laughs> normally this bit of federal government quietly plods along measuring things like poverty racial inequality oh and determining congressional representation that last one's a biggie so again it's about contextualizing it for the reader of just saying this is why you need to care about this thing you know yeah
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, data journalism. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and Media Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is Mona Chalabi, data editor of Guardian US. Now, Mona, uh, you have transitioned over the course of your career from being someone who, it sounds like, was collecting data and analyzing data to someone who writes about data. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about maybe what that transition was like for you, because you're talking a lot about the language and the way you think about language when you're writing about stats. Was it difficult for you to transition from being more of a researcher to more of a sort of translator?
1: No, I don't think it was super difficult. I'm not saying there weren't a whole bunch of um, kind of hurdles, but I I think... um, I think very often when you're so focused on methodology, it can be um, quite inhibitive in terms of creativity sometimes. So because I like to really focus on ways to visualize and and communicate information, I think that part of it was relatively straightforward. I do sometimes worry, though, that um, I haven't kept enough of a foot in in that, that field of collecting data, and I think that's really, really important, to be able to do data journalism well, to explain to readers not only the results, but how you got there.
2: Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing that with, with this transition and, and the focus on methodology and the focus on visualization, how, do you find certain media f- formats easier to do this with? I mean, if, if you're, I know that you sometimes will, will use Twitter feeds to, to send out some of the graphics that you construct. Can you easily build these out in some of the, the ones that you, you like to use most in, in your Guardian pieces?
1: Yeah, so for me, using pen and paper was was a really, really important decision. Um, you know, there, there have been huge advances in the way that we kind of create data visualizations, particularly interactive data visualizations. But I wanted to take a step back from that for a couple of reasons. One is just time, often when you're in the newsroom, you know, you might have an hour or two to quickly throw something together. So obviously using paper and pen is very efficient. Um, but I've also felt that it's been a great way to bring in different audiences who don't necessarily... Um, see themselves as nerdy or geeky or any of those words that actually people quite proudly use sometimes that can be quite um, alienating to other people Um, so I wanted to use hand-drawn illustrations the other massive advantage I think of those is that they very clearly communicate imprecision to readers um, and I think sometimes when you're looking at computer-generated graphics, people see them as some kind of objective truth or higher reality, which is really fascinating, because sometimes when it's embedded in a graphic, it takes on this higher level of truth, whereas people might feel quite a healthy degree of cynicism when they're hearing something in a sentence. Mm. So, um, yeah, that was really, really important to me. And it's, and it's great. Anyone can do it. Like, that's part of the purpose of it as well, is that you look at these graphics and you think, hmm, I could definitely go home and use my iPhone and a piece of pencil, a uh, piece of paper, sorry, and a pencil to do it myself
2: yeah I've, I've i've liked your i've liked the ones that i've seen It's neat, yes. neat stuff Thank you. <laughs> they're
3: they're artistic they really draw you in and it's uh it, what i like about them is one something I've heard John say is that when you look at a graph or a chart it should tell a story and uh and yours do <laughs> and i think the the combination of the art skills you bring to the to the to to your work is really interesting.
1: Oh, thank you. I, ho- I really do hope to incorporate some of the subject into the visualization itself because I think it's quite problematic that so many charts that we look at today, if you were to remove the labels, you would have no idea what it is that they're representing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's quite deliberate it's part of the idea of objectivity, right? Yeah. Um, but again, if you want to bring people into caring about a subject, it's important that the tone of the subject is is somehow communicated in the visualization itself.
3: That's a really great point. Can you can you talk about some of the stories that you feel aren't being covered? Big data. So we talk about big data all the time uh, and particularly in kind of mainstream newspapers. You, you I'm sure you, you know, not not just The Guardian, but The Times. What stories are out there that need to be covered that we're not paying enough attention to?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. I think there are kind of two different types of stories that, that fall into my answer, I guess. One of them is um, stories about imprecision. I think, yeah, again, those yeah, stories yeah. seem yes. very wonkish, they, they feel um, a bit unimportant, but they're actually crucial. The public really is starting to change their relationship with statistics, or maybe, or maybe the voices that are questioning them are just becoming louder. But some of that is absolutely true. People are wary of things like the unemployment rate because they think, how on earth is it possible that we know to a decimal place how many people in this country are unemployed? To give, to give just one kind of yes. example. Um, and I think people like me need to get far better understanding exactly how those numbers were constructed and exactly how to communicate to the audience. You know what? You're right it isn't this precise but we can say that it's somewhere between this and this mm-hmm. um, and i think we need to get much better at kind of communicating the range of truth if that makes sense uh, to people and i've completely forgotten what the second category of stories was going to be how <laughs> wonderful <laughs>
2: those were great examples so i'd like to follow up on that idea of communicating imprecision you know so so you talked about the, the idea of, of using your dice example, that, that people might have a sense of that kind of gameplay and doing yeah. that. But I I often wonder about trying to communicate imprecision at times when the audience, particular audiences, just want a single number. Mm. There's, there's, it seems like there's almost pushback when, when imprecision is going to be integrated into a story.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would agree with that, but I only think that's partly as a result of bad writing and bad storytelling, mm-hmm. right? If it's going to be a 3,000-word... Again, like to take the example of, um, of the US election and the way that a lot of data journalism was done around that. Mm-hmm. Nate Silver sort of published his methodology for his forecast. And honestly, not many people necessarily wanted to dig into that because the language of it was kind of alienating. It kind of conveyed, I think, either you're smart enough to understand this stuff or you're not smart enough. And I think that part of the trick of doing this stuff really, really well is to attach human stories to that Mm imprecision, right? So let me um, perhaps give an example. So I used to write a column called Dear Mona where people could write to me with kind of um, Mm -hmm. questions about their everyday lives that I would try to answer with statistics. And someone wrote to me and said, "Um, do you know anything about the faith of US prisoners? So I found some statistics um, and I kind of presented the caveats to readers of saying, you know, we don't actually know for sure, whether the US government imprisons Muslims at a higher rate, or whether this is down to conversion in prison. All I can tell you is that people in prison, that there's a higher ratio of Muslims in prison to outside of it, right? And so that's a story kind of about the the blank spots, if you like, the things that we don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, people, former inmates wrote to me afterwards, explaining that conversion is a big part of it and that um, part of the reason for that kind of huge gap is because people convert partly partly because you know they, they find that that's the new faith that they identify with um, and partly because you get better prison meals if you get mm-hmm. halal or kosher food um, and you get more time out of your cell to pray. Mm-hmm. Now if I had had the time to pursue the story of one person who had, con- who had converted, that's a fascinating human story anyway and it nicely dovetails into a story about how like who was it that came into the prison and, and conducted this census of prisoners and like do we know anything about what happens to the faith of these prisoners after they leave prisons Mm -hmm. all of it is a very rich human story that just so happens to be a statistical story too
3: so how do you try to balance that because what you're saying here is okay here's the data here here are the Mm -hmm. big statistics but to put a face on it, I've got to go out. I need to go out and tell a story about one person who may be representative of that. And then, how, as a statistician, how hard is that to do, or even think about that? Ooh, maybe this is the wrong. Maybe this is the wrong person I'm telling the story about, and and that person he or she's not representative of the larger picture I'm trying to uh, to get across to an audience here. Yeah.
1: I mean, no one is a perfect representation of anything. And I think that people understand that quite intuitively. I think part of the thing of marrying the two together is about how you pick your stories and about transparency to readers, right? So rather than just saying, we went to this town in Utah to tell this story, why don't we use statistics to determine exactly where we're going to go and do Mm. this reporting? Use statistics to say, we're going to this town because it is... I don't know, the most polluted county in all of America. And we've used Mm -hmm. statistics to kind of determine that. And, you know, creating, again, beautiful visualizations that convey levels of pollution in each county. And then going and doing the reporting there, people automatically understand, of course this place isn't representative because you've already told me it's an outlier, but it allows them to kind of contextualize the rest of the story as they hear it.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on data journalism. Our guest is Guardian U.S. data editor Mona Chalabi. Now, Mona, you mentioned earlier that some of the stories that you work on have been focused on sex, they've been focused on food, which fall into sort of, I I would say, kind of the overarching general category of kind of health stories, which, um, you know, within journalism, and having been a former journalist who did a lot of health and, and science stories, can be can notoriously bad, badly badly reported, badly written. And so just sort of moving into a, maybe a different kind of lane just for a moment, I wonder as someone who does a lot of work on those sorts of health-related stories, what are maybe some of your frustrations about the way that those kinds of stories get covered?
1: Um, I would say that one of my biggest frustrations is that um, people communicate the likelihood of Um, side effects, say, or the likelihood of um, getting sick without really explaining to readers the risk factors that affect those averages. And this is actually a complaint that I have about um, a lot of journalism that uses numbers. Very often, reporters will just take the kind of top-line numbers, the average or the median, Mm -hmm. without drilling down into demographic patterns or age patterns that affect those numbers and honestly that's what readers really really care about that stuff they want to know whether they're in a high-risk group or a low-risk group and it often doesn't take too much extra work to give them that information
2: so what why do you think that that's not present what's what's the barrier for telling <laughs> that part of the story uh
1: if i'm really really honest i think a lot of journalists are some of, some of it is laziness and some of it is about um, being uncomfortable with the numbers, right? Yeah. So it's okay. one thing to look at the press release and it's yeah. another thing to dig into the academic study itself and understand what it means when you see those numbers in brackets. That's not necessarily explained. This is the confidence interval. This is the margin of error. Again, it takes a certain degree of statistical literacy to understand that. But rather than saying, emailing the authors and saying, what does this mean? These numbers seem important. They kind of get left by the wayside, and again, instead, the top line numbers are reported.
2: That that really begs a follow up question. So, so how how should we be training the the journalist of tomorrow? Oh, yes. oh um,
1: I or up today. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I I guess I'm kind of quite nervous about even the the job description data journalist because I feel like. Every, it shouldn't be siloed. It shouldn't be that, you know, you just get this one piece that kind of summarizes all of the numbers and then you get the reported piece. I think all journalism graduates today should have taken a course on on statistics and on numbers so that they feel that kind of degree of um, comfort and statistical literacy. Indeed.
3: Yes, I, <laughs> I think the challenge sometimes is when we have our journalism students here, there is a phobia about numbers right some of you know some students are attracted to to careers and courses and majors that don't really challenge them or test them they're going to go to their kind of comfort zone so I guess the question you want to come here and teach (laughs) (laughs) I
1: I, I totally hear you about the difficulties of of students who don't necessarily feel like that's something that's for them. But I actually did a, a, a workshop at Columbia this weekend, and I feel like data visualisation offers so many opportunities to get those students engaged. Because yeah. this is obviously a massive characterization, but I think people either tend to be quite concept-driven and be able to think in quite abstract ways, which obviously maths is a very, very abstract uh, subject, or they're quite visual people. And data visualisation can give people that in to, to, to feel more excited about numbers and statistics, I think.
2: I, so I got to ask the complimentary question then, too. What is it that we need to, to get the, the people that are interested in statistics and math to be better communicators and better get the, to contribute to, to journalism?
1: Oh, good. That's a great question. I think. I honestly think a lot of them need a little bit more humility. I know that sounds awful. <laughs> well, there's, there's two
2: people in this room that probably agree with you. Yeah,
1: right. um, yeah I, I, I do think sometimes there's a bit of an attitude of either you're oh. smart enough to get it or you're not. And yeah. making, making their level of subject expertise accessible to a wider audience I think sometimes people see that as dumbing down Um, and you know that's something that I felt as well like I have an ego and I felt like when I first started doing these um, these illustrations they felt silly they felt childlike and I thought oh god like I'm going to be less respected in my field for doing something that isn't super impressive Um, but yeah I think it's, it's important it's really important I don't, I don't know if that really answers oh, your no, question. I, I think
2: that's, that's really important. I mean, being able to communicate technical information in a non-technical and interesting way is a really hard thing to do. That's, yeah. a, that's a skill that has to be yes. developed.
1: And again, and again, if people understand that that actually will affect the accuracy of something that they probably assume is perfectly accurate. Again, to give an example even these very very simplified data illustrations I publish them very often on Instagram and one of the nice things about using Instagram is that there's a comment function right so very often people comment underneath and what they're saying to me is oh so like I don't know let's say I've written this I've written 53 out of 100 probability so people comment saying oh are you saying that if I do this thing 100 times 53 times out of that 100 it will happen And so it's a really great way for people to communicate what it is that they've understood from something that you've published. And honestly, my belief is that if they've misunderstood something, I have failed as a journalist. It's not because they're stupid and they're they're getting the wrong takeaway from it. And again, I come back to the idea of this recent US election, which has honestly had like a really long term impact, I think. On data journalism, mm-hmm. again, very often the, the response of Nate Silver following the election was that people who criticized um, his forecast had misunderstood the nature of probability. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's fair. I think that readers were were misinformed because the way that that data was communicated was confusing to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, since you bring up the election, one of the outcomes of the election, uh, as you, I'm sure you are aware, is this debate over fake news and fake mm-hmm. facts. And I wonder if given this particular climate that we're in, if people who are doing work like yourself, and I won't call you a data journalist, but who are using a lot of data in their work, do you feel an extra uh, amount of pressure to make sure that you have gotten everything right? Because, you know, whenever you're reporting on numbers, I, for me, I was always paranoid I was screwing something up. Yeah. Uh, right. So I wonder if it, given the climate we're in, if you feel an extra level of pressure to really make sure that you're getting it right. Um,
1: I wouldn't say I feel an extra level of pressure. I feel an extra level of pressure to be transparent about my calculation process because, again, it comes back to this idea of humility. I hope that readers know if they call me out because I've got something wrong, and I do, I get things wrong, I will respond to them saying, oh, hey, you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, a very, very clear correction on the piece. um, A thank you to the person who might have called it out. Um, And again, part of, uh, of establishing that tone is about being very, very transparent. So I just started, um, well, a couple of months ago, I started a fact-checking column, of which there are are dozens and dozens now. Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit reluctant to do it because it felt like it was quite a saturated market, if you like. But the way that I've tried to make it different is by doing it as a step-by-step where readers can can do the exact same research oh. alongside me and see if they came to the same result. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, hopefully that brings readers in to say, I don't think I'm smarter than you. Anyone can do this, and this is how
0: I did it. What's the response been to that column?
1: Quite positive, yeah. It's been nice. Again, like I really rely on my inbox a lot for... Um, for figuring out how I'm doing and I've got some really, really nice emails from readers either suggesting future topics or saying that it was helpful to ha- them to have it very, very clearly spelled out exactly how I kind of got the data that I did. You
2: know, that sounds like good teaching strategy. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's. I mean, you're, it sounds like you're being just a, a really outstanding educator. I mean, you're trying to show the steps, the, the way you break down a problem and then you show a way that, that you come to understanding how how it either is correct or incorrect.
1: I hope so, but it's also me wanting to be a pupil because all the time people will point out a different way that I could have done it. And that's really, really helpful to me too. If I just publish the results and someone else arrived at the same results, there isn't that kind of exchange of knowledge about a different way of doing things.
3: We're sort of starting with the general public with this notion. I think you even in your TED Talk say about four out of 10 Americans distrust the economic data they get reported by Mm -hmm. the government. They're distrustful of government data. And it's even higher among Trump supporters, we know. Yeah. Um, so you're starting from this position where it's almost like people believe that. How do you get past that belief? Uh, you, I think you focused on the concept of imprecision and let people know exactly how this, you know, how that works. But, uh, you know, I guess the bigger question is how can both st- statisticians and journalists do a better job of sort of meeting that, that resistance head-on that the general public has, uh, particularly today, uh, against data and numbers and uh, and you know trust in government statistics.
1: I think this podcast is really important. I think it's exactly that. Thank you very
3: much. (laughs) You can come back anytime.
1: (laughs) But seriously, it's that marriage of statistics and stories. Again, it would be so powerful for the public if there was a really beautifully made, engaging, short video, short podcast um, that explains how on earth the unemployment rate is calculated, not just you know, we, we speak to some businesses and we come up with the numbers. There's there's a real pressure to go beyond the published PDF of the methodology and go and and not also the other alternative, which is a journalist like me simply publishing kind of the top line results of the latest numbers. There has to be something in between those two extremes that people can latch onto and build their trust on top of.
2: Very good, thank you. So you mentioned your column, but you didn't tell us the name of it. Can you tell us the name of it?
1: Oh, it's called Just the Facts, which I actually think is probably a terrible name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Other ideas are welcome. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Our guest today has been uh, Guardian US's data editor, Mona Chalabi. Thank you so much for being here today, Mona. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.